It's Thursday, January 12th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Newly elected Representative George Santos rejecting calls from state and party officials to step down. Why should I? said a defiant Santos. I worked hard to be named head of neurology at Sloan Kettering Memorial Hospital to do so would disgrace the memory of my ancestors who fled the Holocaust. Museum gift shops, high prices. Okay, I joke because (laughs) I love this guy. To quote upcoming GIST guest Mark Oppenheimer, I love this guy. Just what a surfeit of fun and frivolity. He just lied about everything and no one cared. Thanks, unobservant media. My analysis of George Santos, Santos maybe, Santos, Santos, and what he'll do and what he should do, comes down to a consideration that too often we don't make when we high-horsedly tell people, get the hell out, you should be ashamed of yourself. Remember, mostly the reason these people got in these positions is they have no shame. They don't have the shame gene. You're not going to shame gene them out of doing something that they have no capacity to even recognize as shameful. However, what we so often do is fail to put ourselves in the shoes of George Santos, which could be anywhere from a Bruno Mogli to a uh, Nike limited edition, size 7, maybe to 13, depending on who he's trying to impress or what bowling alley he's trying to pilfer from. Put ourselves in his shoes and figure out what are his motivations, what does he get by staying, what does he get by leaving. A lot of times a politician won't leave their post because they figure they could weather the storm. Politicians, especially ones who've successfully won elections, say, well, I I have a bond with the voter or I can still parlay my position into a better job. I have no idea what George Santos even thinks in his weird mind, thinks he could possibly do with his experience as a guy who snuck through in one election and finally got his comeuppance when anyone bothered to notice that his CV was barely spelled with the letters C and V. George Santos, unlike almost every politician in this situation, just needs the money. He needs his congressional salary. $174,000 is not a lot in the scheme of things, but it seems to be a lot more than he has. And the other thing is, since he doesn't have any plum lobbying job waiting for the him, or maybe if he gained a lot of weight, he could go on The Biggest Loser, but it doesn't even seem like reality shows will come a-calling. Certainly not the uh, Trump networks. They're not going to give him a slot. He hasn't proven beneficial or useful to them. It seems to me that his calculation and consideration is that once he leaves Congress, he has no more chits to play. He has no more relevance. He obviously wants attention. People won't be paying attention to him. And this is crucial. And I quote Pope Hat, Ken White, uh, who has an excellent podcast with Josh Barrow, he raised this point. A lot of times prosecutors as part of a deal who might charge a politician with corruption will say, well, there'll be less of a sentence or we won't even bring criminal charges if as a condition of this plea, you step down. So if he steps down before knowing that there are charges pending, he doesn't even have that. So George Santos doesn't have that many great options, except one. He could actually accept his Uncle Willie's position of heading the factory, cranking out chocolate to the delight of the world, just so long as he could make peace with the Oompa Loompas. On the show today, I shall spiel about Joe Biden's tendency to put documents, I don't know, in any old place. But first, 
Nicholas Davidoff is the author of The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence and justice in the American city. The book revolves around a retired grandfather who was shot point blank by a young stranger. What followed was a speedy investigation and an innocent person going to jail. Nikki Davidoff up next. New Haven is, in many ways, a typical American city. In fact, it's so typical, it's atypical. Let me unpack that conundrum. There are so many things going on in New Haven that happen in other cities, things like income inequality and crushing poverty, but also really expensive, wonderful parts of town. It is kind of rare to have all of them in one place, but that is the situation. Nicholas Davidoff, Nikki Davidoff, who is the author of the new book, The Other Side of Prospect, grew up in New Haven. He says, quote, my family lived on the first floor of a rented two-family house. I had a single school teacher mother who'd worry aloud at night on the fold-out couch. How am I going to make it through the month? And from that vantage point, Nikki, the aspiring journalist that he was, would observe the town and observe that his classmates at the well-to-do school where he was a scholarship student, behaved very differently from his baseball teammates who behaved very differently from residents of parts of town, such as the one he writes about in The Other Side of Prospect. A gleaming citadel of Yale. I haven't even gotten to the plot of the book, but uh, Nikki, welcome back to The Gist. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be here again. So tell me about the story story. I tried to lay some of the predicate for the context, but tell me about the incident that sets the events in action. New Haven, as you, as you say, is a compressed version of bigger cities. In other words, that it is very diverse and complicated city, but it's not that big. So everything is very close to uh, the next thing. And for me, it was playing youth baseball around the city that I really got to know it beyond my neighborhood. And I just, there was a point in my early teens where I was playing in a game in Newhallville. And it suddenly just struck me the way it does for kids. I mean, you know, as kids, you don't talk about these things that much, or maybe you did, but we we didn't really talk about our, you know, existence as we lived in the present. We talked about what we were up to. But I remember just standing out there on this field, and this is in a post-industrial neighborhood, or it's what's becoming at that point post-industrial. But is nothing in my, you know, in my just in my noticing compared to some of the kids I'm playing baseball with, that they seem to have really serious struggle going on. And then right over there beyond the fence, just a short walk away is Yale. And it just was really confusing for me as a child, these sort of disparate communities and that one place is basically paradise for children, right? For young people growing up, if you come to a place like Yale, it really in certain ways is designed to set you up for America. And then there are people all around me who I knew from experience were also just, you know, wonderful young people who, for whom life was much more of a struggle. And I just found that very confusing. And so I just remember standing out there on the field and thinking, how can this be and why should this be? And then across my life, as I'd come back to visit my mother, this was a recurrent thought. And, you know, you're, if you read New York Times or you read various publications, they all say, you know, every once in a while, they'll all have an article on the two Connecticut's or the two Americas. And, and that was something that I just really, at the core of it, I wondered how it felt. 
to be someone who's growing up right over the lip of a hill from which there's a completely different America right there and what the consequences might be, both in terms of neighborhood, but also in terms of your own, you know, inner life. So what role does Yale play? What role did it play in your main, I'll call him your main character, Bobby's life? Did it mock him and people like him? To write a, the book, I came back. I'd been living in New York with my family, and I moved back to New Haven. And you know what we've been talking about so far, I think, are it's an idea or a or, or a subject or a topic, but it isn't a story. And I was hoping to find um, a way to tell about what I was thinking about through real people. And eventually, I heard from a lawyer who had a client who told me about someone named Bobby who was in prison since he was in, in his mid-teens for a murder which the lawyer said he hadn't committed. And um, I, over the course of the, the he becomes um, the main figure in this account. And um, he would say that Yale had absolutely no role in his life. I mean, that, that, that it was there, but it, it didn't exist for people in his community. What's your critique of the university that you probably have dozens of times you know, taught either taught a class or done a seminar or had some interaction with and certainly admire as a leading institution in America. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the beautiful things about this country are our great universities and people come from all over the world to go to them. And not only do they offer young people wonderful education, they also, in their research capacity, they do amazing things to make the world a better place. I mean, just look at what Yale, all the Yale people who did so much to further the advances that are made medically against COVID, right, after COVID happens. But they are also, and Yale, for whatever reason, historically, I guess it's kind of an Anna Karenina situation where all town-gown relationships are unhappy in their own way. And I would say that Yale's, for whatever reason, has been notably unhappy. And for me, as someone growing up in New Haven who wasn't a Yale person, I feel as though people growing up in New Haven, every kid kind of wants to be on on the side of Yale. You want you want to root for Yale in their football games, and you want you just want you you want to feel as though in one way or another you can be freely proud. And I think for a lot of the people in the community that I was writing about, there was there was some of that yearning, but there was also a real disaffection. This is the is the, just the feeling I can only report the sense that the university just doesn't care about them. I want to talk about the specific story that you tell this sprawling tale through. I'll quote you to you. The slaughter of an elderly black man on the single block of a gloomy street was yet another homicide in a neighborhood where distressing incidents of violence were common enough that everybody knew someone. But the authorities thought they knew or convinced themselves they knew who was the murderer of Pete Fields, but they were wrong. Tell me about why they got it wrong, how they got it wrong, and who they thought did it. So this neighborhood, you should know, is a neighborhood that was sort of defined as an iconic neighborhood where every immigrant immigrant generation that came through in any significant wave beginning in the mid-19th century to the eastern seaboard inhabited this neighborhood and worked there, lived there, moved up and out. And this is true for Irish, Italian, Eastern European, German. The, the community could be defined in those terms at various points all along the way. And the last is the great migration of African-Americans from the South. And it becomes a sort of upwardly mobile black Southern neighborhood in a Northern city. And for the first generation, that works great, same as it did for um, 
every generation preceding it. And Pete Fields is a his family comes from South Carolina and they move to eventually they buy their first house in this neighborhood. And Pete moves up and out and he buys a bigger house in a town outside New Haven and then an even bigger house. And his kids have different uh, childhood experiences than he had and so forth. And when he's 70 years old, he comes back to New New Haven, often because he's a widower and he has a girlfriend who lives in, in the old neighborhood. And um, it's his misfortune to be parked outside her house one day when a couple of teenagers run up on him and when he won't give up his money, they shoot him. One of them shoots him. And, you know, then eventually the wrong kid gets blamed for it. And why this happens is a big, complicated story, and it speaks to many things. But one thing it certainly speaks to is, I mean, you could, it speaks to law enforcement, right? And, and, and police officers maybe not knowing as well as they should the community that they're serving. And it also speaks to if an innocent person is charged, you know, and with such a crime, it also speaks to, can we say a kind of vulnerability where if you're stuck in your neighborhood in the way that Bobby was, it makes you vulnerable to law enforcement and also to just being caught in the web of violence in a, in a way that uh, is really dangerous for you. So how much of it is, I mean, it's so much, but how much of it can we put the blame on the mistakes of individual detectives? Um, there are a few in the book. Michael Quinn, we get to know others. How much can we put the blame on the failure to supervise these detectives or the failure of the criminal justice system to realize that these were false confessions that were uh, obtained. That kind of speaks to the different approaches that you could take to writing such a book. A pretty conventional um, way to write it would be as true crime, right? And you're just telling the story. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted this book in one way or another for the neighborhood to be the main character. And I was really thinking about how the long legacy of past events affects present situations and predicaments. And so I would say that there's lots of blame to go around, that a neighborhood is formed not in the moment, and that things that happen in a neighborhood in a moment are informed by many, many different kinds of things that happened beforehand. As to your specific question about policing, I would say that certainly, obviously, the police are to blame if you coerce a false confession. But one of the police officers who's a detective who is involved in this, um, in this case came from the neighborhood and had a reputation at the police department for having unusual expertise about this community, that he knew it, and it was regarded among his superiors as a somewhat, uh, how can you say, opaque, cryptic, unknowable place, but that, that he had the information and he had the knowledge. So they deferred to him. And I think that over a period of time, that kind of reinforcement of his almost neighborhood omniscience meant that he was empowered in a way that is dangerous because while he had been a younger police officer by most accounts, he was a really, really effective detective. But as he got older, he trusted his intuition too much. And he also became a little bit freer with his working methods. And I'm being very, very, can we say, politic in how I say that. Um, 
and this is certainly the responsibility of the people who were running the police department at the time, that they empowered somebody who became dangerous to the people he was supposed to be serving. What I would say about policing and violent crime generally is that things go a lot, policing is a responsive business that you as a police officer can only show up after something has happened. But it's also true that policing is a business where if you show up before and you try hard to get to know your community and you really have an intimate knowledge of the people who put the neighborhood most at risk and who also are just kids who are, the phrase, the, the expression would be just around, just around kids, kids who are in the neighborhood and get caught up just because they're there, not because they're actually, it's not a matter of volition. It's just that they're there. And Bobby's a just around kid. He's just there. But like a good, likable kid, not a kid who just merely didn't do a murder, a kid who, you know, everyone who knew him would say, that's the furthest thing from within this particular kid's character. Right. He's good hearted. He's observant. He's sympathetic. People trust him, as he said, with their vicious secrets because he's not judgmental and he's compassionate. And he was a wonderful person to write about because you're looking for people who in one way or another are representative of the community that you're trying to evoke. Right. And Bobby had wonderful, wonderful perceptions about the experiences of other people. The lives of others really mattered to him, and so did childhood. He could evoke his own childhood and other people's childhoods with a kind of a level of detail and also, again, a sympathy and an engagement, which made, uh, I don't know how else to say this, but innocence come alive. You really got a feel for what it was like to be a kid in Bobby's community because Bobby knew and saw so clearly. And so he's sort of the he's sort of an observer. He's the kid who rides around and over the hill on his bicycle, right? And that this kid is the kid who gets caught up in this debacle is um, it's illustrative of a lot of the sorts of problems which we're talking about. Well, not only was he an innocent accused, which is a staple, a necessary staple of journalism, and a charismatic figure who not only gave you a lot of time and insight, you know, having read your works of memoir where you talk about your childhood, did you recognize in him a lot of traits? Uh, he wasn't a writer. He didn't take those skills to the page. But I'm wondering if you saw in Bobby uh, an observational ability that you see in yourself. I really think that one of the lessons of this book is, um, and one of the lessons of my experience writing it certainly, is, is that you can never, never undervalue enough complication and that we run into trouble when we don't get to know people better and when we don't, whether we're police officers or educators or whoever we are, or just you know citizens in a community, we do better just as a people when we really take the time to know each other, that we both, it's not just a matter of making mistakes, which lands the wrong person in prison. It's also just what makes a community thrive and flourish and be feel like a better place to exist. And so Bobby and me, we definitely had you know, sort of superficial things in common. But I would be hesitant to say that Bobby and I were too much alike because I think he's so much his own person. So I wouldn't want to Im impose myself on him, so to speak. I, I would say that Bobby, for example, I mean, you know, one of the tragedies of going to prison when you're a teenager and coming out is that <clears throat> where a lot of people use those intervening 10 years to develop a sense of who you are in the world and maybe what you want to be and even maybe what you're good at. Bobby came out of prison still in life experience, 16 years old. 
And that meant that he had no idea. He would always say, I don't know what I'm good at. And I, I think fundamentally it would be hard exactly to say who Bobby still is because he's still figuring that out, that there is something still incipient about him. Another thing that I thought was pretty rare was, or maybe not so rare, but pretty rare that somebody would explain it in the explicit, very frank way that he would, which is the, when being accused of doing something that you don't do, that is a horrible thing to have done, finding yourself in a predicament and then wanting somehow for there to be an explanation where it all makes sense, where you can le- look at the course of your life and the narrative is logical and rational and meaningful. And to end up in prison for something that you didn't do, instead of just eating out your insides because you're not supposed to be there, but you're there, finding, trying to find a reason that will justify to yourself why you're there, this speaks to me, I mean, and there's no reason, but the desire to have that kind of reason and the the ability to talk about it, that's rare. Well, the reasons are everything you wrote in the book. I mean, the reasons are post-industrialism and race and policing and everything else. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason, but I mean, I just, we're talking about an individual here and I just find it on a very human level. I mean, the book is full of many people and those people are in their own way, true life literary characters, right? They're like figures from a, a novel with many characters And those people all have a different stake in their community, and they have a different interior life. And what I guess I'm trying to say is that Bobby's interior life, especially in that way, especially in grappling with this horrible, sometimes almost Jobian, you know, tragic circumstance that he finds himself in, for me, that evokes at its core, you know, some of the troubling aspects of post-industrial America better than saying, oh, well, you know, I couldn't get, uh, you know, I couldn't get the job that my grandfather got. You know, that kind of grappling that a kid should have to do that and would want to do that, such a good-hearted person, to me, that is, to, I found that very powerful. Right, right. Like we don't just deny people opportunities. In doing so, we thrust them into figuring out some scaffolding of blame, self-blame to right. explain that. And it's very, very easy for people to say right now that any America is created now and exists in such a way that anybody can make it. And certainly any there is the possibility, no matter where you come from, that you can make it and have the a kind of life that you aspire to. But there it's just undeniable that there are many places in America where it's just more difficult. It's not to say that people don't do it, but that it's just much more difficult to do it. I mean, you know, these are places where, you know, the the cliche is pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but these are places where there are no boots. So it's just much harder to pull yourself up. And for somebody like Bobby, you know, a big difference between us is that he didn't, as a child, have a lot of access to understanding the future. He's under pressure all the time. So he exists in the present. And then he also exists in a way so there's nobody helping him. And then in the biggest, most significant moment in his life where he's being accused and coerced into confessing to the worst thing you can do to another person, 
because he doesn't have any help, he doesn't have any leverage, he doesn't have any agency, it's just harder for him than it would be for, frankly, somebody like me if we're comparing us to as a little kid. And it's not to say that I don't think I would have... I think anybody, if put under enough pressure, might confess to something that they didn't do, but he's put in a much more vulnerable situation. Nicholas Davidoff has written books about football, baseball, espionage, country music, his own family. His latest is The Other Side Prospect, a story of violence and justice in the American city. Thanks so much, Nikki. Thanks for having me, Mike. It was really nice talking with you. And now the spiel. A DC office, his home in Delaware, in a garage next to the Corvette, maybe stuck between the seats of several Amtrak quiet cars. Who knows where else Joe Biden's classified documents are going to be found? I do know there's now a special counsel looking into it. And we also know that Joe Biden wants us to know he takes it all very seriously. People know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. People know it. Sure, documents are turning up in more places than the XBB15 variant, but the important thing is, eh, Joe's not happy about it. Actually, it is kind of important that Joe's not happy about it, that he alerted the authorities as soon as he found out about it. So at the risk of sounding like a really low-paid Joe Biden PR advisor, there is a chasm between Donald Trump's document mishandling and Joe Biden's. Trump mishandled hundreds of documents. Some were reported to have been top secret. We don't know about Biden's classifications. And this is the whole game. Biden cooperated. Trump obstructed. Charges against Trump, should they come, will be because he didn't cooperate. In fact, some of those charges will be for not cooperating. Intent matters a whole lot in these matters, because the point isn't that someone once had access to secrets, and now, even though they shouldn't have access, they still do. It's not about the person with the access or who once had the access. The point is to keep others who shouldn't have the access from getting it at all. And yeah, poor slot storage, that is one way for documents to fall into the wrong hands. But being given the documents is another way. And that's what investigators and the public should be very worried about. As soon as you find out you have documents that you shouldn't have, if you alert the authorities, that at least shows you're trying to prevent others from having access, which is in the government's interest. If you don't turn them over, it indicates you might not care about who gets access. And if you obstruct efforts to your having to turn them over, that gives rise to the reasonable suspicion that maybe you want the wrong people to have access to these documents. Biden is making a carelessness argument. Sell it as you will. Say it's inadequate or unacceptable. But note that Trump never even attempted this argument. He lied about having the documents, then lied, or his lawyers lied, about his cooperation in turning them over. Remember, we didn't even know that Trump had documents in storage until the lack of cooperation necessitated what he called the raid on Mar-a-Lago. You know why Delaware wasn't quote-unquote raided? Because Biden's lawyers gave them up as soon as they were found. So if Trump and his defenders say, Biden did it too, that's not just legally inadequate, it's not accurate. 
The real issue isn't document storage. It's cooperating once classified documents are found. Biden will not and should not face investigation into the Espionage Act, though the Trump prosecutor is looking into that. One day, Bob Herr, Robert Herr, the Biden special counsel, is going to run into Jack Smith, Trump's Torquemada, and start a conversation by saying, wow, we're the only two people on earth with this particular background, huh? And Jack Smith is going to pause and then launch into a certain joke. Maybe you've heard it. It's about the surface similarities between two notable figures, and the punchline is, oh, Jesus? No, Pinocchio. Do you know the joke? No? It's like a couple of sheaves of paper in a Delaware garage. Restricted. But, you know, I don't love being in the position of just parroting the Biden defense lawyer's talking points. I actually look forward to the right-wing media or any other savorer of delicious hypocrisy unearthing some damning quotes from someone who was so eager to attack Trump that they posited that his improperly stored documents were in and of themselves an affront to safety or democracy or dire or deadly. Such a person deserves a little bit of omelet face. And also let's note that Biden, though we're saying he did the right thing by having his lawyers disclose to investigators as soon as the documents were found, he did hold that back from the public until now. Why not? Well, obviously, it was because he didn't want to screw up the midterms. And guess what? I say that's the smart decision. There's no duty to disclose at the time that hurts you the most politically. And this revelation won't really hurt Biden politically, I do not think, if it doesn't get any bigger. You know, it didn't even hurt Republicans in the midterms. Trump's other misdeeds, the big ones, the election denial, yeah, that actually hurt. But The documents, I mean, there are Reagan Democrats, there are NASCAR Democrats, there are no document storage Democrats. In fact, doesn't the presence of a special prosecutor cut against one of Trump's central claims of special victimhood? The investigation shows they're out to get me. Well, here's another investigation about the same set of facts. What does that do to your original claim of martyrdom? Of course, once I told you that and you said to yourself, oh yeah, right, I'm going to bet that you weren't believing in the original martyrdom claim to begin with, right? To undo Trump's claim requires the application of logic, which is a quality that uh, the very introduction of the argument relies on as not being present. I'm already seeing some chatter that takes into account all the differences I've laid out and asks, why is the media then hitting Biden so hard? I'm glad it is. If this is the number one story on cable news, and it is, there will be no charges, no legitimate charges of sweeping things under the rug. But do check under the rug. There might be another cache of documents there. A think tank on Louisiana Avenue, stuck in the gear shaft of a green convertible with 350 horsepower V8 engine and a four-speed manual transmission. Who knows where else we're going to find more classified documents? Oh, I know. Every block of programming on Fox, OAN, and Truth Social for quite some time. And Biden deserves it. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, Just Producer. Just Senior Producers, Joel Patterson. Michelle Pasca is the COO of Peachfish Productions, and The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. If you'd like to advertise on The Gist, get in touch with AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Thanks for listening. Every once in a while, I take the Corvette out of the garage and just run up and down the driveway. <laughs> 